This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad yourself? I'm good. I'm good. excited about today's episode. We're getting through the remainder of the voicemails that came prior to the episode where we had the five questions where we gave a copy of um, the book, Learning Digital Identity by Phil Winley. And I just wanted to, to mention that like we, these voicemails don't go to waste, right? So even though not all of them made the cut for that episode, we are using them. Um, we're going to go through them, uh, the remainder of them today, but we love the voicemails. We have a talk to us feature on our website, idacpodcast.com. Go there, click talk to us, leave a voicemail, and we'll use it for a future episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if we don't play it, like the Chip Chipperson one, I got a kick out of it. I knew exactly what it was. So I think you mentioned our friend Mike W. Uh, was the person who put that out there. So, Mike, if you're listening, I got you, man. I I, I picked up on that one. <laughs> yeah, he was quite proud of that. He he texted me, like, low-key was like, I can't believe you guys didn't use my voicemail. I was like, <laughs> I didn't even know you left a voicemail. He was like, yeah, it was a Chip Chipperson voicemail. I was like, oh, I got you, man. <laughs> Playing games with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew exactly what it was. I thought it was a good... I, I couldn't understand the, the the message at first, and then it was the, the lame... You know, is your refrigerator running? Well, you better go catch it. <laughs> and uh, I'm such a fan of of Jim Norton and his alter ego, Chip Chipperson. That that was an, uh, that was an obscure reference, but I still caught it. So I don't know. Uh, I, I hate no, to court it, disaster, but you know, good luck next time. <laughs> it was good. No, I mean, um, anyway, reminder for everyone: if you can get out there, leave voicemails, and of course, um, the best way people can support the podcast is by you know, leaving a rating on their podcast platform that they, they choose of their choosing and five stars is appreciated, of course. And any kind of comments, we do read them. And the, the ones that are more complimentary, we usually read on the air. Mm -hmm. I print them out, put them on my refrigerator, kind of like, you know, a child showing their work uh, for the rest of the household, that kind of thing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But we got a couple conferences coming up this summer. You want to kind of get us kicked off of the first one? Yeah, so very excited. We've been kind of teasing this for the last uh, few weeks, I feel like, but Identiverse, it's official. We are going to be there, and we have a discount code that we can share with folks. So if you're going to be at Identiverse, it's in Las Vegas again this year, which is fantastic at the Aria. Very cool spot. Dig it from last year as well. May 28th to the 31st. And if you're listening to this, or I guess if you're not listening to this, but happen to get a hell of a code, IDV24-IDAC25. And don't worry, we'll have this in our show notes so people can check that out. Um, but if you register with that, you get 25% off whatever the going rate is. And yes, it does stack with early bird rates. So save a lot of money by doing the early bird, save another 25% by using our code. You can go to identiverse.com, find the link to register for Identiverse 2024, use our code, help support the show. Um, I know Jim and I are doing podcasty things there. We haven't quite figured out all the details on it, but we'll definitely be there and uh, definitely want to encourage people to register for that. Uh, the exciting thing for people who are into the whole CPE continuing education thing is they actually have 20 credits up for grabs. And so if That's your organization, yeah, it is. So like an organization like the one that Jim and I work for RSM, we have requirements for CPEs that we have to get every year. I think it's like 40 or something like that. 
going to one like this conference knocks out half of that. So it's fantastic for us. <laughs> Hopefully other people can take advantage of that. But it's it's a great conference. I, I think we've talked about it on a verse in the past, you know, multiple times. We'll be doing a show with Andy Hindle, I believe, probably in a few weeks, kind of leading up to the up or leading up to the conference. But uh, yeah, we'll have a, a link in our show notes. Use our code, show support uh, for the podcast. That's another way, a uh, free way uh, that you can help us out as well. Anything you want to add to that, Jim? No, you know, there's a lot of uh, things, reasons why to attend. I mean, there's a, this is a four-day conference, right? So I think it's really well-priced for getting the four days plus using the discount code, saving even more money. But it's over 70 hours of sessions. Um, top-notch names like if you go out to their website look at kind of the uh, the speakers that they have lined up for the for the uh, conference it's pretty impressive um, as well as hands-on master classes and training so uh, a lot of good coming out of this conference yeah plus is a vegas which is always a good time i just love conferences in vegas it's so easy you got the airport right there plenty of hotel rooms plenty of places to eat drink do things that are of your own volition, right? Things like that. <laughs> yeah. Control yourself, though. <laughs> the other conference... It feels like we, we always talk about that, like, every year, like, okay, it's a great place to be as long as you can control yourself. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and I can control myself. I have that. Uh, my, my, I am not, you know, a gambler or really much of a drinker, but people watching food and, like, experiences, yeah, sign me up. I'm all, I'm all for it. I think the only thing missing from Vegas right now is a Portillo's and I would be a very happy person because they've got a Hattie B's chicken in, in, in the Cosmo. Um, you know, there's plenty of other places to eat, but I, I need a Portillo's in Vegas just so I can, you know, complete the trifecta when I'm there uh, from a food perspective. Yeah. I've never gone to Vegas though and complained about the food options. So no. I think it's all right. Yeah. Um, you were about to mention, and I'll take it over from here is the identity week conference circuit. So we sometimes call it Identity Week America, but it's on the European continent as well as in Asia, as well as in North America. So we've got your Identity Week Europe in Amsterdam, June 11th and 12th, Identity Week America in Washington, D.C., September 11th and 12th, and Identity Week Asia, which is in Singapore, October 22nd through 23rd. And our listeners get 30% off by using the uh, discount code IDAC. 30 IDAC 30. Um, in the show note, we have uh, a link to the conference where you can go and register and all that great stuff. Yeah, another discount code, another partnership we've got with that conference. We'll be at the Identity Week America, September 11th and 12th. Um, I think right now I'm going to host a panel on stage with some people to talk about identity things, I would imagine. Wouldn't make sense for me to talk about anything else. And then you and I are going to be doing uh, more podcasty things somewhere there. So still kind of figuring out the details on it, but um, excited to partner up with those guys again. It was a fun conference last year. It was uh, it was interesting. My first time going there, and I think there's definitely a, a lot of opportunity to you know catch up with people. Some some pretty good names that were there, and uh, it was in a good spot. So I'm looking forward to that one again. Yeah, I think if you've never been to Washington D.C. too, it's one of those cities that you know there's there's certain cities in the United States that are distinct san francisco there's no other city in the united states or probably in the world like san francisco new york city um and washington dc those are three that really stick out in my mind that are just like you know very unique places but i think with washington dc you've got a lot of things that are kind of low-key stuff to do a lot of um, museums and things like that so 
you're into that, you can certainly find it. Well, here's the most important thing about that is it's at the convention center and just about across the street is a Yardbird, which has the best chicken and waffles I've ever had. There's a few of them around the U.S. One's in Vegas. That's the one where I first discovered it. But the best chicken and waffles, Yardbird, it's right next to the convention center. So you know I'm going to be there at some point <laughs> for chicken yeah. and waffles. The one thing I will say, I feel like you're interested in going, even if you're not sure you don't have the approval or whatever, get out there early to book your hotel Usually, I get one with a cancellation policy. Hotels in D.C. are extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But don't forget, chicken and waffles. All right. <laughs> Let's talk uh, about our episode today. So you mentioned we have some more listener voicemails uh, that we're going to bring on here. And uh, we have a guest. She's going to help us answer some of these voicemails and maybe give perspectives. We've got Eve Mailer again. This is her four and a half appearance on the show. She was with us for number 48, 116, 151, which is sort of our famous, what is the difference between digital identity and, I- and identity and access management? She was with us for 202, and this is, should be episode number 262. So welcome back to the show, Eve. It's great to be back. I'm, you're making me hungry with all this talk about chicken and waffles. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the goal here, right? Uh, you know, a little food talk, a little identity talk. Um, you know, We've covered your background in the past. You're a former CTO of Forge Rock, and now you're the founder of Venn Factory. I guess catch us up you know, since 60 episodes ago, which sounds like a very long time. Uh, what are you working on now? And tell us a little bit about Venn Factory. Yeah, I have launched a consultancy, and it exists to help both identity-related tech vendors as well as enterprises craft irresistible identity strategies. Um, that's the kind of thing that I helped to do when I was at Forge Rock most recently and something I love to do with my very weird collection of experience. <laughs> mm. So now I get to help others do it. So where does the name come from? Venn Factory. Venn Factory. Yeah. So uh, some folks will know uh, being in the industry, if you've been in the industry for any length of time, you might remember uh, a set of three bubble Venn diagrams that I started doing in like 2005. Originally, it was to compare SAML and OpenID, the original OpenID, and way back when, InfoCard, before it was card space, before it was an InfoCard standard. And then I kept up that series kind of maintaining this, um, this analysis, this Venn analysis of these standards. And I've sort of kept that up over the years. And somebody at some point called me the queen of Venn. And, you know, and anytime I give a talk and don't include a Venn diagram, there's a certain level of disappointment. I thought, why not lean into it? So for those in the know, it's a little in-joke. I'm having some fun. And if you don't know the in-joke, well, who doesn't love a Venn diagram? You know, they, they help you analyze. I, I, I firmly believe you can analyze anything and put it into Venn diagram form. So there you go. I firmly believe that as well. I think that's a great name. And I always think of you as the queen of Venn diagrams. I wanted to say something. So Jeff kind of went over all the episodes that you sat with us. And what I appreciate most was episode 48, not because of anything you said, but we had like 10 listeners at that point. And (laughs) here we are episode 262. And I think we've eclipsed, you know, we're, we have a lot, tens of thousands. Well beyond 10. (laughs) Yeah. We keep growing every year. And yeah, you were with us at the very beginning 
uh, when we were when we were nobody. And guess what? You're still with us when we're still nobody. <laughs> oh, <laughs> listen, it is an honor. It was an honor then. And listen, it's an honor now. And and just you guys influence a lot of people's thinking and you teach people a lot of things. So that's why it's so exciting to be here yet again. So thank you. Well, one thing that really helps us teach people is having, you know, guests such as yourself on the podcast. And that's what I think we'll get a lot out of today. Um, so we have these voicemails. I, th- I don't know if you were kind of tuned into this whole thing, but we did a contest. We had uh, Phil Winley on the podcast a couple months now, a couple months ago now. And he was very generous and offered us some book code so people could get free copies of the book and with the way we decided to distribute those was ask people to leave voicemails and we would pick five of them and we played those and jeff and i answered them and we gave book code so um we couldn't use all the voicemails but we had a few extras left over and two of them we wanted to play today and have you help us answer those questions so jeff would you queue up the first question which came from david stromer friend of the show, a friend of ours, spent a lot of time with him last Identiverse, and he asked a question, and I'll let you play it. Hey, Jeff and Jim. In Philip Winley's book, Learning Digital Identity, Phil describes the benefits of an identity metasystem. My question is, what are your thoughts on the identity metasystem? How practical is it? And what is the best way for broad adoption? Is it more government regulation, economic incentives, or a combination of both? So, Eve, I'm going to bounce that to you first, but I'd love to then follow up with comments. Yeah, it's it's a really good set of questions. So, thanks, Dave. Um, I find it really interesting the way uh, Phil lays out the possibilities of an identity metasystem that respect all of the seven laws of identity that you know were proposed by by Kim Cameron, and he contrasts in his book. Um, a meta system that we have today, uh, which is like social login, social sign-in, social identity, with decentralized self-sovereign identity and how many more benefits there could be in that vision. I think that's where this question is going, right? It's like, how can we have that? Where where would we go to get that? And what does it look like? And it's it's tough because the notion of a meta system of any stripe is interoperability and a willingness to work together. Um, And so one of the things that I think is a feature of this social login meta system that we live with now is it's got super glue stickiness because of data monetization. And this is something that's super hard to overcome because now we're in the realm of business models, right? Um, And even when I think about, there's another meta system that we kind of have, a more loosely coupled meta system, which is just kind of the OAuth, OpenID, Connect, Stack, writ large, in usage in enterprises. You know, there's a lot of, uh, Phil introduces this word generativity, which I just love, the notion of something generative where you get unexpected uses out of it. And, and OAuth and OpenID Connect certainly have that as well. New flows, new token formats, and so on. Um, that meta system too, even though it's lighter weight, um, it's it's extremely generative and it's extremely hard to dislodge. Not because of business models so much, but because of some indirect features, like um, 
you know that there's going to be tools available. You know that products are going to support it because we've got standards. You've got developer knowledge that you can assume a certain level of. Um, you have this ability to sort of string together the pieces and you have the ability to customize it. So meta systems that are in place, I think, are demonstrating a lot of stickiness for different reasons. And so to Dave's question about, you know, how practical is it to imagine this new meta system coming into place? What's needed for broad adoption? To me, I'm, I'm going to say it rests on um, softening the value of data monetization, maybe recognizing the liability risk in, in identity data in a new way before we can sort of change behaviors more wholesale. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I went back to this chapter, it's chapter four in Phil's book, and calls it the laws of identity, right? So he talks about the idea of the identity metasystem but titles the chapter Laws of Identity, which was infamously developed by Kim, uh, what was it, like 20 years ago. And so the one compare and contrast that he used that really struck a chord with me was, you know, using the example of the Internet is a communications meta system. Like a telephone is point to point communication. The Internet is a way to communicate and there's or or a medium to communicate, and there's all these different ways you could do that with FTP or websites or you name it, right? You can do all these things, and it all rides over this. And and so the identity meta system has to be the same thing. It's you had mentioned OpenID, and really that's like some organization who wants to have a set of identities, and then. There could be governments that want to have sets of identities. So it could be all and all these different ways that you have to, you know, communicate with different organizations through your identity. And also as a person, I like to think that I have one identity, which is Jim McDonald, but that's not really how it works in the real world. According to the state of Georgia where I live, I'm this person that has a driver's license, according to um, the United States government on this social security number. And I've got like, you know, hundreds of identities on the internet. I've got a corporate identity. And so this meta system has to encompass all these things, right? It, it's, it's kind of like the underlying concept. And this is what's tough about meta system plays because you need such a level of interoperability between disparate systems that somehow have a contract with each other to, you know, interact on the, on the basis of these rules. And it's a harder play than these sort of massive big tech plays that we're familiar with where, you know, it's not, it's, it's pretty centralized, right? There's kind of a pull towards centralization. Um, I, my Aunt Denver's talk last year, I was talking about insidious centralization. Um, you know, despite best efforts to sort of pull the pieces apart and to, empower people thereby, uh, we still experience um, sort of honeypots, <laughs> you know, things like you know, just as they experience in, in the world of cryptocurrency, you know, exchanges are a way of sort of recentralizing that, that sort of scotches some of the value of, of the decentralized platform. Um, this, is, this is one of the things that makes it extra tough to kind of sign up to, to have everything work with each other <laughs> out of the box without having to have, you know, laborious business agreements. 
Um, one of the things I appreciated in, in Phil's book is talking about administrative identity versus user-centered, which is starting to get into the more, you know, giving people more of a, an ability to use the rights that they should have, and then kind of going all the way to, to self-sovereign, I think was the sort of third level. Um, that was the phrase he was using for the third level. Uh, pretty much all the uh, identity accounts that we have today really are administrative. Um, and there, and he did a nice job of uh, identifying administrative elements that live, that lurk beneath the surface <laughs> of even user-centered and even better uh, ecosystems. Yeah, and that's probably the the world that many of our listeners, the practitioners of the world are living in, right? Is the administrative identity or working for some organization or we're developing products that that um, focus on that. But now this new, I, I say it's the new world of decentralized identity because it's kind of entered my conscious within the last few years. That's breaking in but it's still probably a smaller percentage. So I think a lot of folks are still trying to wrap their heads around it. My, my follow-up question was going to be, I've heard people make the statement many times, and I'd like to get your take on this, that the internet was created without an identity layer. Like That was like the big mistake. Like had we just created this identity layer when the internet <laughs> was launched, we wouldn't be having these problems. But I think that misses the whole nuance that really what Kim's laying out with the laws of identity, which, you know, believe an identity metasystem, I think is inevitable, right? It's really like the law of the universe almost. What do you think? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know that if the, the internet had been built with something that we could really identify as an identity layer, if it would have satisfied us according to these modern requirements, right? Because I think Kim's requirements are kind of, they, they represent a look back at what's been happening and going, mm, I'm not so pleased with that direction. So would it have looked the way we expect? I mean, adding mobile devices and the API economy and sort of the modern world of blockchain even to the picture, they've given us new ways of conceiving of whether we can even pull this kind of thing off. And way back when, when browsers were fantastic and new and, you know, everybody was making a homepage by viewing source and like, I, would it have been the same identity layer that we know we want now? <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not so sure. That's right. I mean, it'd be America, we'd be running America online and wouldn't somebody <laughs> figure out how to <laughs> subvert that? Um, I had one other question about identities is, you know, it seems like we talk about Internet of Things, identity of things. And now, like, you can't get away from the discussion around machine identities, rightfully so. But I wonder, is are we misusing that term? Can a machine really have an identity or is it just accounts and the identities go back to people? Oh, my goodness. That's so philosophical. Um, let's see. Uh, how many machines can dance on the head of a pin? Um no, I, honestly, I think, I think it's well stated, actually. It's, it's, you know, lots of us, Phil included in the book, sort of say, you know, talking about an identity kind of isn't really very helpful unless you're talking about the, the um, personal conception component. And in which case, you know, 
there's no God in the machine. The machine can't, you know, act on behalf of itself. It needs to be a proxy for somebody. And so you could say it doesn't have an identity, but in practice day to day, it's, it's going to be talked about. The machines have IDs and identifiers aren't identities, but let's just roll with it. (laughs) So I'm going to say, yeah, there's machine identity. And the thing to be cognizant of though, is um, this is something I care about a lot is like, who delegated that machine um, the ability to act on their behalf? Because there's always going to be a somebody who's actually legally responsible, um, who has that, that kind of legal duty, liability, fiduciary duty. And so machines kind of, well, to date, they can't have it. You know, maybe if the singularity shows up, uh, we can worry about that. But, you know, to date, machines act on behalf of other parties. And that's the piece that we tend to forget. And I like to remember it because I'm such a big fan of delegation semantics and, and that driving authorization. Jeff, wondering what you think about this topic. You know, Eve, the word that comes to mind with your last statement there is accountability. Who is accountable for this account? Yes. Yes. Um, I think we get into the semantics a little bit. Okay. Well, define identity. Like, what do you mean? Like, do you mean identity, identity, like human, <laughs> right? Or are we talking about in the, <laughs> in the context of identity and access management, which encompasses everything? But the word that always comes back to me is accountability. I, mean, I absolutely agree with you. It's like these accounts are acting on behalf of something and who is accountable for whatever that transaction is. So I think about it from like a racy perspective for fans who like mm-hmm. the racy model, recountable, uh, recountable, responsible, recountable. accountable, consulted, and informed, and informed. Yep. who is accountable. And the thing that I always run into is a lot of people think that they are accountable when they're actually responsible for something. In yes. my mind, accountable is kind of like a, a Highlander. There can only be one, <laughs> right? <laughs> because yes. if you have too many A's, nothing's getting, you know, nothing's happening. There's really no decision making taking place. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be binary one or, you know, one or none. But um, I think about that accountability. So you have those machine identities that are out there. Who is accountable for it? Is it IT? Is it the business? Is it Jim? Is it me? You know, who, I think there is still someone who's still accountable for those identities. And, and, you know, this, this is really important. I, I love, actually, I think there needs to be a, a new version of a Jane Austen novel that we can ask AI to write called Accounts and Accountability, um, because that is really the crux of the matter. Like, you know, um, we don't document those things very well. In fact, we don't document responsibility. Now, I'm going to say accountability from now on um, for individual pieces of what today we call identity data. Like, who said to collect it? And why did they want it? And what is the value of it? And what is the cost of it? Like, if we actually had that much clarity, there's a whole bunch of things that would be clarified, including something that would get swept into the mix is workload identity, workload accounts, workload identifiers, service identifiers, um, thing identifiers. Um, those are those are part of a bigger picture where I don't think we're even doing people identity information particularly well on this score. Who is accountable? for collecting this information who is accountable for using it that's one of my favorite questions to ask when i walk into you know any client conversation is all right so who's who's accountable for identity does that person know it <laughs> so yeah right? that's the other thing too <laughs> it's like oh i didn't realize that was me it was like my my favorite answer like is i asked that question and then you know a bunch of us are sitting around a conference room and everybody's pointing at different people or 
everybody's pointing at one person and that one person is pointing to someone else like okay hmm. clearly there's a disconnect here <laughs> we got to figure out like you know what are the roles you know from a identity yeah. perspective you know if it's just people in process right the program itself so i'm right there with yeah, you if that, that one, one person is giving the shrug emoji you know there's something seriously <laughs> wrong <laughs> and that's okay right i guess it's you know it's okay to ask those questions because if you don't ask the questions and there's not clarity on it how else are you going to get clarity right. on it? I think sometimes How it's helpful out? to go into those conversations with like, yeah, we don't have all the answers, but let's figure it out together. And then, yeah, and then we'll nominate someone as Highlander of identity. And that person <laughs> will have the sword and can only chop, you know, heads off. And that's it. Um, I feel like this is a good segue into our second voicemail. Cause it was around identity fabric. And this one came from Satish. So I'm going to play that now. And then uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Hi, Jim and Jeff. Good day. This is Satish from Melbourne, Australia. I am a regular listener of your podcast. Appreciate the efforts that you guys are putting in to discuss on different topics related to digital identity domain. It will be great if you can cover a session on what is identity fabric and the reasons why we need them. Thank you. All right. So thanks, Satish. And I love it when we get questions from around the world. So uh, I've never been to Australia. It's definitely on my bucket list. I'd love to go there at least once. Um, but thanks for sending that our way. Uh, let's start with the first part of the question of what is an identity fabric? And then we'll get into why it might be important to consider as part of the, of the evolution of someone's identity program or maybe a technology stack, whatever it may be. Eve, do you want to take a stab at sort of defining what is an identity fabric? I see it as having all the elements of identity design time and runtime as pluggable components that speak to each other and are ready to do any job for any population, be it human or machine, um, requiring integratability and interoperability at its very core. Yeah, I think it's important to say that this is, I don't see this as a product. It is a set of things, people, process, and technology that make this framework up to say, okay, here's a bunch of different services that we have, and they they form this blanket, <laughs> this warm identity blanket. It's, okay, yes, we can do <laughs> provisioning and we could do deprovisioning and authentication and authorization and and things like that and it's i think it's a construct to help people kind of get their head around what are the things that we provide what you know how big is your blanket how warm is it <laughs> right is it a summer blanket is it a winter blanket is it a blanket at all maybe it's just a sheet <laughs> uh i don't know where i'm going yet with the blanket <laughs> analogy but i feel like it's it's sort of taking hold of my head as we're speaking um Jim, how do you see an identity fabric? Like, what does it mean to you? Yeah, when I see it come up the most, there's two different scenarios. One is the large enterprise where maybe there's been some decentralization over time. And now, so you might have different IGA systems or different single sign-on systems and a lot of legacy technology. And you're trying to wrap all that together without breaking too many eggs. Honestly, for a long time in my head, I looked at these this situation that I just described and my attitude would be fix the underlying problem. Don't have multiple single sign-on systems. Don't have multiple IGA systems. But the reality, this is where pragmatism comes in, right? It's like, okay, genius, don't you think we knew that? <laughs> Wouldn't we love to just wave the magic wand and get rid of these things? Each one, you know, you love to say this, Jeff, and recognize this. There's 
politics within the organization. And a lot of times when it comes to things like this, politics includes not just ripping it out of people's hands. And it also comes down to what's our focus going to be on, right? We can't focus on everything or we're not focusing on anything. So you need some kind of ability to have all this variety in your environment, new, old, different vendor technologies, and you have to be able to accommodate that and still move forward. The second place where I see this is mergers and acquisitions. And again, it's, you know, you keep bolting on companies, they come in, they've got whatever they've got, but it might be different than what the acquiring company has. And so, again, it's not just a snap of the fingers and make it all go away. It's you need some kind of transition or maybe your strategy becomes, you know, we're not going to spend the money on a transition until it naturally comes, but they just spent all, you know, a couple million dollars to put these systems in over here. We put, spent a couple million dollars. So we're just going to make all this stuff work together. Or we're not even sure that, you know, which system is better, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, yeah, I am bringing it back to kind of a technology like a tool perspective, because I think usually tools that are built around the identity fabric concept, it's the underlying is that there's this variety of technologies, variety of generations of technology, and we want to achieve seamlessness. <laughs> if I know I just made that word up, but you know, it, it's not as simple as just saying, you know, get rid of your legacy systems, rewrite all of them. Or, you know, yeah, these header-based applications that you have like 250 of them, just make them all SAML enabled. You know, oh, yeah, it's just not that easy. It's not trivial. And actually, my husband, Eli, recently wrote a LinkedIn post that I loved. It was about celebrating your tech debt because it, it, it represents those tough decisions you made so that you could live to fight another day. And, you know, it's, it's not really a best practice to go and eliminate all tech debt. You know, it's it's like just the same way that, you know, taking a loan can sometimes be a good idea. It's tech debt, right? So there's reasons why companies make those decisions, why people make those decisions. And finding the right tools that, that are fluid and kind of facile with that situation, I think, should be part of the identity fabric story. They're there to serve you. I'm a, I'm a recent Notion user, and I don't know who among your listeners are Notion fanatics, but it's easy to become either, I suppose, a hater or a fanatic immediately. And it provides kind of a fabric for, you know, capturing information of whatever form. And um, to be that um, easily accepting of all the different shapes and sizes that identity solutions come in for your average enterprise is, is I think, what we need to strive for. And it's funny, back in, okay, this is like early 2012 when I was at Forrester, I had written some research shamelessly kind of stealing from my, my then colleague, John Kindervog, who had published kind of the seminal zero trust research. I was like, can I steal this? And, and for, for a concept I have called zero trust identity, he's like, yeah, sure. So he helped out. Um, I was very lucky. Uh, and what, what zero trust identity looked like for me, so this is not saying use identity to achieve zero trust. It was how do you make all of your identity systems loosely coupled? And I was recommending that you have standards and that you have API facades. And when I squinted that, I'm like, yeah, it kind of looks fabric-ish. Um, now I love this whole warm blanket thing. <laughs> I have to think about that a little bit. Um, but like, you know, I think these concepts have been around 
for a while. And that was the era when, you know, Steve Yegi had recently written his rant about everything should have API interfaces. And, you know, it was the full flowering of those days. And I think we're starting to see some of the benefits of that now. Like I'm excited about shared signals as an example, standardized interface for basically security event PubSub. Uh, around which you could do a whole bunch of things. Could that be a sort of tool in the in the toolbox for just making it easier to incorporate whatever state each system is in? So I, I think the, the key word here is the fabric part, right? It's a flexible thing yes. that covers a certain amount of area of different thickness. <laughs> so I feel like I'm onto something here with the blanket idea. I got to flesh yeah. it out a little more. <laughs> CYA with your identity blanket. <laughs> <laughs> right. I feel like there's a, there's an Identiverse talk or, or something there around totally. it. Totally. Um, or maybe someone else smarter than I am can, can take that and kind of run with it. And uh, I did find Eli's uh, uh, post on LinkedIn. So I'll put that in our show notes as well for people to oh, check cool. it out. Um, so you can celebrate your technical debt, um, which is totally the antithesis i think of what most people are trying to do <laughs> well exactly it's like just in but the way of thinking about what it represents as business decisions like you know it can't be too hard on people who made those decisions yeah i mean hindsight's 2020 right and, and it's okay to get smarter over time you know maybe there were there's always reasons why things were chosen in the past sometimes they're good reasons sometimes they're not good reasons but there are reasons and it's okay to get smarter um i want to tackle the second part of the question why is this important why should we care about that nice, warm, comfy identity blanket that is identity fabric. And for me, I think I'll start off here is it's really, it's interoperability, it's flexibility, it's the ability to pull things together and say, yes, this is what, these are all the things that we can do. But I don't know, Eve, do you have like a separate uh, viewpoint of why this is important to have an identity fabric of some sort? I mean, kind of like what I was, I was saying previously about like, you know, if you conceive of identity as a login box, then you're missing all the things that you need to take care of that will benefit you with a more expansive view of identity governance, of making uh, authorization decisions better, of uh, achieving that elusive goal of you know not just least privilege, maybe zero standing privilege. Like if we're really serious about these things, if we're really serious about giving customers a great experience through you know, personalization. All those things need different parts of identity that are definitely, they're kind of below the water. They're not the part people see every day, um, but, but we know how important they are, but to do them right and to have all those pieces interworking together and then interworking with the systems that need the results. Boy, it, it's so powerful. Last year, Liminal had a, had a report that I found really interesting. It was about Siam specifically, um, but it was saying that every dollar spent on Siam had a 15.3 times return on an annual basis. And it's like, seriously, that, that sounds like a really good deal. <laughs> Why aren't more people sort of taking that approach? Why not do mm, it? Yeah, it pays for itself or it makes pays you money, for apparently. Itself, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and because they're, they're worried about, I would say, the integratability, and, and a lot of them just don't see identity that way. You know, we're, we're sort of, a weird breed with, you know, that, that live with this stuff all the time. And we see all of its possible uses and that makes it more valuable. So that's why I think it's important to get right. Just hook up the systems in a, in a kind of more of a mesh, you know, everything talking to everything. Of course, you actually do need zero trust if you're going to have these interfaces exposed and you probably got to be protecting them all with OAuth. Um, 
et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking now it's like a quilted type thing where there's like different parts of the quilt are the services, but they all form like just you know one giant thing. See, this I'm is sounding kind something of here with the blanket thing. Now. I'm like, okay, now I'm thinking like, oh, you're the, not giving up on this blanket. I'm man. not. I, 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 I definitely am not. Jim, why is an identity fabric important in your mind? Well, it goes back to, I guess I'm, I'm going to do the same thing you did. So I'm going to draw it back to my original point of what the identity fabric is, right? It's taking all these diverse technologies and making them all work together. So I think rather than saying, looking at your landscape and doing what I said originally, which was, why not just clean up the mess? Why not just get everything onto some modern system? You do the calculation, you say, oh, that's going to cost us, let's just say it's a lot of money. Um, I've got an analogy of my own. So you're a CIO and you've got one of those, you ever do one of those things where it's like, there's all these jars and you vote by putting your tickets in the jars right? So you put all of your tickets in one jar, you can spread them out. And so this, the analogy would be, you're the CIO with your tickets, that's your money you can spend on technology. And then you've got all these jars. And one of the jars is, you know, doing that project. Some of the other jars are things like, I'm going to fix identity for CIAM, right? So it's like a part of that, but it's like for my customers. And then I've got another jar that's I'm going to do something really strategic with identity relative to our product. Like I'm going to bake it in and then there's all these other jars, right? But that kind of, that analogy kind of maps back to a reality, which is that maybe it's not a zero sum game, but there is limitation to how much money you have. You can't just get everything you want. And so maybe by putting one ticket or two tickets into that, I'm going to solve this fact that through mergers and acquisitions, I have all these different systems or I'm a big corporation. I've got all these different legacy systems and different technologies for identity rather than just, Hey, I'm going to do a consolidation of all of my IDPs. That's going to take a whole bunch of tickets. I'm just going to put one or two tickets in there and I'm going to integrate everything. So that's why it's important. It's fewer tickets to kind of, you don't get the same result, but you get a lot of the benefits that you would get if you throw all your tickets in there and you do a consolidation. And plus, by the way, what if you do a consolidation and the company you happen to consolidate around happens to go away? You know, like then you put all your tickets in there, you spend a bunch of money. Those projects are high risk to begin with, but then what if you bet on the wrong horse? You know, so... Uh, I think that's the benefit of the fabric approach. Yeah, that's where standards can actually insulate somewhat from, you know, decisions that might otherwise be costly. And that's something that I'm so glad that it turned out identity needs standards more than your average IT situation seems to, um, you know, to solve some really important problems. You know, we came up with cross-domain single sign-on, and that meant flinging identity information in standardized packet format safely and securely and like once we managed to do that like a whole bunch of things started to unroll um and 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 those were really valuable things so you know identity has has had this um tight relationship with standards that i think helps that situation i hope it helps that situation well there's a natural affinity i feel like for identity and identity standards it just it makes so much sense it makes things 
the promise of things being easier. It's not always the way in, in the real world. And mergers and acquisitions are always a pain. <laughs> I don't know if many companies actually have an identity strategy for mergers and acquisitions. Some do, I'm sure. But a lot of the ones that I talk to are, yeah, we, we bought this company and identity was sort of like, it's just going to come along and we'll figure it out as we're going along. And, and that, 10 years later, they're, they're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, that's where the 14th repo and the 15th repo come in. Like, yeah, we yeah. acquired that many companies. <laughs> yeah, how many domains do we have on our Active Directory? Okay, just checking. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, I want to go back in the past because I feel like we've got an opportunity here to do sort of a, um, you know, what's changed uh, a, a few months back, June 2022, we had an episode where we asked a whole bunch of really smart people, yourself included, what's the difference between digital identity and identity and access management? We got like 10 different responses and 10 different answers. Nobody answered it the same way. Um, most people, I think, were sort of on, you know, generally in kind of the same direction. And uh, our friend Adam Michael from uh, uh, one of the uh, higher education institutions out there had, a, had really the only significantly different answer where he was flipping the DI and the IEM kind of components. So what I want to do is we've got you here. I'm going to play what you said about, you know, a year and a half ago, roughly. And we'll see, you know, has, has the thoughts changed? Is there things you want to add or remove to it and things like that? So let me play that now and then we'll get into it. Identity language has been a contentious subject for a long time. Thinking back to the beginnings of IIW, the Internet Identity Workshop, the original effort by that community was to actually develop a lexicon, a comprehensive lexicon. It was tough going then, and I think it's always tough going in this area. How I see digital identity as a phrase is that it applies to the users of or the interactors with identity technology. Uh, and I see IAM as being about the implementation of identity technology in whatever guise. So when it comes to digital identity, the kind of the user perspective, um, you know, most people interact with identity in a way that actually isn't all that pleasant. Identity theft is probably the first thing that comes to mind. And a lot of times that interaction is actually in an offline fashion versus an online runtime authentication, for example, fashion. When it comes to IAM, that term itself is, is a bucket for a lot of other different things, and sometimes they overlap with IAM, and sometimes they're maybe a little bit apart. So identity management, kind of life cycle considerations, access management, really all the runtime considerations, uh, and also governance and administration, which gets into the world of really operational things. And there's this phrase that I, I really like lately, BOLTS, which is business, operational, legal, technical, and societal. So that's kind of the game that you get into when you talk about both the, the above-the-water uh, user considerations and the below-the-water implementer considerations. One of the things that I find when I just talk with ordinary people out there who don't do what I do about what you could call the jobs to be done of digital identity is that all of the, the, the things people expect to get from this sort of technology, it cross-cuts with things businesses want as well. Uh, you know, I have a new Venn diagram about this where I think in terms of protection and personalization and payment and people. So there are unique needs among all of those categories, and they cross-cut quite a lot of things, like achieving security is actually something that's welcomed 
by people and by businesses. It applies across all of the identity language. So that was Eve, that was you, circa 2022, referencing Venn diagrams, we had bolts, <laughs> uh, a whole bunch of different things. I guess, what are your reactions to hearing that now, a year and a half later? Do you feel like, yeah, you're generally still in the same boat? Have things changed? Do you want to create a Venn diagram about it? Like, what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's always weird. Other than it's always weird to hear, hear myself. I don't know, in a recording. Um, I, you know, I, I think I agree with myself. Um, I, I, I do think it's useful to remember who cares about what. And so, you know, I, I don't hear anybody out there who, doesn't, who isn't in IT ever say I am. Not once. They don't even know what it is. Um, and if you say I am, and, you know, those letters and, and that order, people are like, oh, you're so technical. <laughs> and that's like not even a half of it, right? Whereas practitioners and technologists in the field readily know it. And like, if you, if you look up sort of, I don't know, cybersecurity forums, they're starting to sort of recognize I am. So it seems like it's specialist terminology. And I think it's useful to just remember, you know, thinking of machine identity, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's some person who's going to be, whose life is going to be impinged on because of this stuff. And we should keep them in mind. I mean, you know, that's kind of where we started this conversation, talking about um, Phil's book and Metasystem and things like that. So um, the one thing that I, I guess I would sort of add on top is there's all these new acronyms. I mean, IAM is just the start of it. And um, recently I posted this thing on LinkedIn, which was not a Venn diagram, though, you know, if you squinted, you might think it is. And it was basically the reason why I put it together was trying to figure out what the heck do people really mean by ITDR and ISPM in particular, which is identity security posture management. And like, all right, let's sort this out because there's been a lot of contention about ITDR. Like, do we need a term for this? Like, what's the difference? And so I plotted them against the NIST cybersecurity framework and came up with a place I was happy to, um, happy to be at. But, um, and so that's kind of a newer thing in the picture in the last year and a half. ITDR was something that went from sort of Gartner being kind of put on the spot to defend it as a term to people starting to lean into it. And then an interesting thing came out of that comment thread, which was around this whole notion of, well, recover is the last sort of stage in that cybersecurity framework. And where's the identity acronym for that? And we did have a couple of folks saying, hey, I do identity resilience, and I consider that to be part of the recover bucket. Like, do you call it IR? <laughs> do we need a new acronym? We don't have enough acronyms. <laughs> There's one thing the identity uh, industry is good at. It's creating acronyms and creating confusion for people say, who are oh. not in the identity space. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, how that can you keep link- it a cult if you don't have <laughs> Yeah. That LinkedIn post that you talked about, Eve, was what triggered me to check to say, hey, Eve, are you ready to come back on the podcast? Oh, um nice. Yeah, it was really no, it was a really good post. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, I keep going back and forth on this topic of digital identity versus identity access management. And I find myself using the term based more on the audience that I'm speaking to. If their point of reference is I am, I use the term I am. If their point of reference is digital identity, I use that. Um, I think you're right that. I think people who are more technical or more close to the technology, they're going to say I am um, unless I think if they're outside of 
what we what we think of as like identity governance, access management, or even just cybersecurity, if they're thinking in this bigger picture, like we talked about with the identity meta system, they're probably starting to think more digital identity. They're thinking kind of like big time strategy of like how do we take the identity and make it, you know, like a, an enabler for us and our products and our approach to our customers. They're more likely to reference digital identity. I, I still think we're, though, dealing with, uh, as goes to one of the comments I made earlier, I still think we're going, going back where some people are like, oh, identity, identity. People love to throw around terms like zero trust, identity. And like, I, you know, this person can have 15 identities in, in our directory. It's like, no, that, that's not 15, direct, 15 identities. There's one identity. It's the person. We've got 15 accounts. And so I still think we can get dragged back into the mess of like, that's not identity. You know, Jim, I think I'm going to accept your uh, friendly amendment here <laughs> because when I was doing the work, when I was at Fordrock around what we called embrace the future of identity, there's that just the I word plain. Um, it really was about business strategy and about um, this nice formulation that I really believe in this. You're protecting you're connecting, you got to respect individuals as well. So protect, connect, respect. So once you're at that level, you're really talking business strategy and values. And at that level, I think identity, digital identity is absolutely the right word or phrase to use. Um, and it does seem like that is much more a, a topic of conversation lately among folks who can make a difference. So that's good. I think context matters. Um, my position really hasn't changed over the last year and a half. I think it is context. Who are you talking to? How do you, you know, resonate with them and help them understand whatever it is you're trying to articulate? If it's I am great, if it's digital identity, great. If it's identity, great. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of blurred lines there. Who you're talking to, I think you need to make sure you tailor your communications to make sure that it's understood. Because I think there's a difference between you know, talking to someone <laughs> and actually having a conversation where it's actually being understood and recognized. And there's a two-way street there where there is actual communication being shared rather than just thrown up on a billboard that you may or may not consume <laughs> or even remember right. after you drive <laughs> past it. Um, this has been a great conversation. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm always happy to connect with the Eve. I know your time is precious. So I want to shift over to a lighter note and start to wrap things up. And I gave you a, I gave you a few choices before we hit record, <laughs> and the consensus in the room was to go down the route of aliens. So, just for the record, that's how it started. Do you believe in aliens? Why or why not? You know, until you posed the question, I hadn't really seriously given a thought. So I'm they're a not big top fan. of mind all the time. For <laughs> <laughs> let me show you my whiteboard and all all the strings of um, the Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I believe in aliens because of the law of large numbers. And to somebody else, we're the aliens, and they're probably wondering, but do they deserve to be considered to have identities? Are they? You know, they're not us. We don't even know if they're sentient. So, <laughs> yeah, they might not I, be yeah, human. Like, what does human mean? Yeah, right? maybe they're robots. I once I, I mentioned this to somebody once. I had the good fortune to happen to sit next to Esther Dyson on a plane ride, and we got to talking. I was reading some science fiction thing, which, as I mentioned to her, 
explored the classic science fiction question, what does it mean to be human? She's like, well, that's also the classic philosophical question. <laughs> mm. So that was quite the conversation, I can tell you. <laughs> that, that, is, that is the question. Um, so yes, I, I, I believe. Jim, how about yourself? Do you believe in aliens? Oh, man, I don't have a black and white answer to this, but I, have you guys heard of the Fermi principle? Educate us. Yeah. Okay, or the Fermi doctrine or whatever it's called, but um, the question becomes, if they're aliens, why haven't they shown themselves to us before? And so I think that's an interesting question. I also think the size of the universe, if our laws of the universe are actually correct. So we believe that speed of light is the fastest that you can travel, right? And we have a pretty high confidence that there's not intelligent life like within a couple of light years of us. You know, you're talking like thousands of light years someone would have to travel to get to us. Now, if you could travel faster than the speed of light, potentially you could come from a different galaxy and find us. There could be other life in the rest of the galaxy. I mean, we're a tiny, tiny speck in our own galaxy, and there are thousands of galaxies. So, I mean, law of large numbers, Eve's probably right. There probably is life out there. Um, but the, the Fermi principle is like, okay, well, if there were, then why haven't they shown themselves to us? And I think that is a good question. So I don't know. Um, I'm with Eve on this one. I, I think the universe is so large and so vast. It's a sheer numbers thing. There has to be just something out there. Now, how you define it, I think, is open for interpretation, right? I think it could be anything. <laughs> if, if you watch a Star Wars movie, any of those things could be in there um, or not or others. Um, you know, Fifth Element has a ton of them. You know, maybe they look like Lilu and she's just yelling multipass across the universe and no one understands it. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's the number game. It is, look, like, like we're just this insi insignificant speck of dust in this enormous space. The odds are, I feel like there is, there has to be something out there. Now, Jim, you put out this idea of, well, why haven't they shown themselves to us? What if we are the most advanced living thing in the whatever? Oh, no. We haven't even escaped our own, <laughs> really, you know, our own solar system, really, you know, we sent probes and things like that, but we're still trying to figure out how to get to the moon and Mars on a consistent basis. So maybe there are, is other life out there, but we are the most advanced and we just haven't gotten, you know, we haven't got to that point yet. And the other potential, you know, entities out there haven't gotten there, or maybe we're so insignificant. We don't register for a super advanced race, right? We're like ants to them. It's like, that's not living. Those are just insects. <laughs> this conversation is putting IAM into so much perspective for me right now. <laughs> right. Uh, we'll, we'll need to come up with different personas. Um, I volunteer. We either use the, you know, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, or some other, you know, key, key sci-fi film. I love the fifth element. So maybe we could do something on that. Like what are the elements of identity and oh. try to do like some cross intergalactic <laughs> species persona. Di Venn diagram. There we go. Like something <laughs> like that. I don't know, but you're on a roll today. <laughs> I know I am. Um, it's probably it's it's probably because it's the middle of the day and I still have energy rather than trying to record at night. And I and I've been home for two whole days, so that's also helpful. Oh, man. Yay! <laughs> but I do think it is. I, I to me, it's a numbers game. I think there just has to be something out there. 
whether or not we could even recognize it as life in quotes is a totally different question, but I feel like it is a numbers game. So I think we're all in the same kind of picture here. I think even I are closest. Jim is maybe a step behind in the yes, there is, but there's some caveats. I don't know, Jim, you're shaking your head a little bit. I haven't even ruled out simulation theory. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And now, which means now we're living in a big process. video game and AI from some <laughs> previous uh, civilization. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'll put it, you know, we're all on our phones, we're in our Apple Visions, our Meta Quests, we're in realities inside of other realities. There's a whole inception thing going on. I don't know. I feel like this is definitely heading in a direction that I don't know if I want to take it <laughs> conversations, <laughs> but I'm not prepared for it. Um, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, Eve, thank you so much for being, you know, part of the show over the years and coming back and continually talking to us, even though we get into weird topics <laughs> like this. That's um, why I keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have links in our show notes for people to catch up with Eve on LinkedIn, learn more about Ben Factory, benfactory.com. Um, I'll find that uh, link for um, Eli's Celebrate Your Technical Debt, throw that into our show notes. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have links to our uh, discounts for both Identiverse and Identity Week America. Hope to see people at both of those. Uh, by the way, that discount code for Identity Week um, works across the world. So the same code works for both Europe, America, and the Asia conferences, not just America. So we're most likely not going to be at the international ones for us, but you can still take advantage of that discount code IDAC30. And then we'll definitely be at Identiverse. IDV24 dash IDAC25 just rolls off the tip of the tongue. Super easy. That's why we'll have a link in our show notes and uh, you can check it out there. So um, yeah, we'll have links for that. Follow us on the web, IDACpodcast.com, Twitter, X, whatever it's called by the time you listen to this at IDAC podcast and uh, Mastodon at IDAC podcast at infosec.exchange. Connect with Jim and I like subscribe, all those fun you know, social things uh, that helps us out and send us voicemails so we can do more shows just like this. If it's not something Jim and I are qualified to answer, we will bring in someone who is. So that's how that'll work. So appreciate everyone for listening and we'll talk with everyone in the next one. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.